Welcome to the God's Peculiar People podcast, where we learn about the lives and characteristics of God's people. This will be the 21st episode of the God's Peculiar People podcast for 2023. And it has been exciting for me to see more people listening, both on podcast platforms and via YouTube. Now, we are nowhere near rivaling any of the big podcasts out there, but all of you have been listening to a lot of episodes, and I really appreciate it. And I don't want to be that annoying podcaster, but if you can suggest the podcast to some friends or leave a review, that would be great. In the past, when I've started other podcasts, yes, I have made other podcasts, um, I would get busy during the summer, not post any episodes, and then come November, it seemed pointless to create any new episodes until the new year. So I don't want to leave you hanging over the summer. But with the gardening business I run, there are truly not enough hours in the day to script, research podcast episodes, and maintain flower beds. So last summer, we came up with the idea to record an audiobook. Can I assure you that that was not as easy as I expected? I think the total hours uh, just to record that book were about 30 hours, then editing uploading. Yeah, it took a long time. So this year we will be doing the same thing. <laughs> we will be posting sections from an audiobook, but we are hopefully going to do a couple things a bit differently. For starters, I'm trying to pre-record most of the chapters, so there's not that annoying sound of the AC coming on during all of my episodes. You may have heard that whooshing sound in the background where it's nice and quiet for a little bit and then all of a sudden there's this like weird whooshing noise. Yeah, that's that's AC. Sorry. Living in Florida with central air, there's not much I can do about the AC switching on and off. I can't isolate this room so it doesn't get AC, plus it gets very hot. So most of the early episodes should be free of that extra background noise. Later episodes, I can't promise anything, and I'm sorry. Second, we'll be posting reels on YouTube throughout the summer. We are currently posting hymns or stories about hymns on Sundays and some information about a peculiar person on Thursdays at 6 p.m. This way, you won't miss out on learning about new people over the summer. And I think I have an idea of who we're going to do and how we're going to do it. I think it should be interesting. If you like it, let me know. If you don't, you can still let me know. That works. Now, for this summer, I chose to read a biography about D.L. Moody. Much like with Mary Slusser last year, as I read books about Moody for the podcast episodes, I realized that there were many aspects of Moody's life that I was not aware of. So, again, instead of trying to summarize Moody's life, we would just read the summary of his life that was written by his oldest son. So this episode today is just a very short episode to say thank you for listening for the first half of the year. And if listening to an audiobook is not what you were looking for, I completely understand and hope you will tune back in on September 5th, hopefully, if not the following Tuesday, as we will be taking a look at the year I spent in West Africa as a missionary intern. Yes, you heard that right, a year. Now, there are lots of ideas running around in my brain for the fall. We will finish the series on the Twelve Disciples, hopefully before the end of the year, and we might look at a few of the Founding Fathers. That could be fun. Now, I have a huge stack of ideas for people to create episodes about. This spring, in fact, I actually had planned to talk about Spurgeon, Matthew Henry, Jonathan Edwards, and a few others, but then I realized that I did not know enough about them to clearly talk about an aspect of their life in an episode. So, in addition to my ever-growing stack of names, I would like to know who you want to hear about. Someone more modern, someone farther back in history, back in time, maybe someone I've not heard about, or someone well-known that I just have not talked about yet. Doesn't matter. Feel free to leave me a comment, DM me on Instagram, or send me an email with ideas. Or, let's try something new. 
how about you use the link in the description to something called SpeakPipe. Here you can send me a voice message telling me briefly about the person you would like me to talk more about. I'll have the link in the description. That's all for today. I have to get back to editing chapters from the audiobook so that they are ready for your listening pleasure, and so I don't have to rush through the summer trying to get them done, like last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not fun. <laughs> so thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing, and I will personally talk to you again in September. Now to whet your appetite for the audiobook, here is the first chapter of the life of D.L. Moody. The Life of Dwight L. Moody, Chapter 1, Early Life Never mind the ancestry. A man I once heard of was ambitious to trace his family to the Mayflower, and he stumbled upon a horse thief. Never mind a man's ancestry. In this democratic spirit, Mr. Moody disposed of the history of past generations, taking no credit to himself for their achievements, and feeling in no way responsible for their failings. It is, nevertheless, of interest that for two hundred years his ancestors lived their quiet lives in the seclusion of their farm homes in the Connecticut Valley. Beyond the limits of local politics, they do not seem to have figured much in public affairs. Among the number there were a few professional men, and in the early struggles for independence, representatives of the Moody and Holton families were among those who counted their lives not too dear price for those rich privileges of religious and national liberty, which they sought to ensure to their posterity. But for the most part, their careers were bounded by a limited horizon, and they served their day and generation in the simple station to which they were called. As pioneers, they were successful, and the same traits of character which distinguished his ancestors in this respect found expression, under different conditions, and in a more remarkable degree, in their descendant. Mr. Moody inherited from that hardy stock an iron constitution, capable of great physical endurance and a capacity for hard, continuous work early developed those distinguishing traits of his New England forefathers. A strong love of liberty, loyalty to conviction, courage in the face of obstacles, and sound judgment in organization, and these constituted his most valuable legacy from his seven generations of Puritan ancestors. The earliest records of the Moody family in America date from the landing of John Moody in 1633. Settling first in Roxbury, he moved later to the Connecticut Valley where he became one of the original proprietors of Hartford. From there he moved to Hadley, Massachusetts. At the end of the 19th century, Isaiah Moody and his sons were settled in Northfield, and the oldest of these boys was Edwin, the father of Dwight L. Moody. Here for years they followed the family trade of masonry, which, in those early days, including the making and burning of bricks as well as the laying of foundations and the building of homes and chimneys. To the conscientious performance of their work, many an old farmhouse in and about Northfield still bear silent witness. A member of Mr. Moody's family was introduced a few years ago to a centenarian of Warwick, a neighboring village. The visitor was presented as a son of D.L. Moody. But the old farmer found a far stronger recommendation in the fact that the young man's great-grandfather and grandfather had, three-quarters of a century before, laid the foundation and built the chimney of the house they were in and with a slight touch of jealous pride for the former generation, he declared that the work was well done, and had stood the test of time. From his mother's family, too, Mr. Moody received a goodly heritage of Puritan pluck, the Holtons antedating the Moody's in America by three years. They landed in 1630, and were among the first settlers of Northfield, where, for more than two hundred years, they had been residents. They cherish a national pride in the fact that, from the date of the original grant from the British Crown, no deed of transfer of the old Horton homestead has ever been recorded. This farm, beautiful in its situation, 
lies on the west bank of the Connecticut River, a mile or two from Northfield Street, adjoining the commanding site purchased by Mr. Moody, upon which is built the well-known Mount Hermon School. Some idea of the hardships through which the Moody and Holton families passed, in common with their neighbors, is preserved in the early records of the towns of Hadley and Northfield. In the local cemetery, near the Mount Hermon School, lies the remains of many of the Holton family, whose names for more than seven generations are recorded on the old headstones. Bessie Holton and Edwin Moody were married on January 3, 1828. It had been arranged that the ceremony should take place on New Year's Day, but the Connecticut River had little regard for the lovers, and unexpectedly rose above its banks after a sudden thaw. Although the young people's homes were but four miles apart, in those days, before bridges spanned the river, the swollen stream was an insurmountable obstacle, even to so resolute a character as Edwin Moody. And only by making a detour of many miles was the marriage celebrated, without a still longer postponement. The bride was twenty-three years old, and her husband twenty-eight, when they left the old Holton homestead that January evening to make a new home in Northfield. It was a true love match between the reckless, dashing, and open-handed young man and his pretty wife, and for twelve and a half years they enjoyed their happiness. God blessed their union with seven children during that time, and by the skill and industry of his trade, the father provided amply for his family support. Dwight Lehman, the sixth child, was born February 5, 1837. The old family records adds the name of Ryther, but this was early discarded. In those days it was customary for one who was complimented by the bestowal of his name upon a child to present a sheep to the baby in recognition of the honor his babyhood was innocently conferring. The feelings of the fond parents were wounded by the omission, in Dwight's case, of the customary gift, and Ryther does not seem to appear again after its entry on the records of the births in the large family Bible. It was foreign to the disposition of Edwin Moody to give much thought to the future and so it is not strange that he made little or no provision for the contingency of his sudden death. When, therefore, he was stricken down without a moment's warning at the early age of forty-two, the widow was left with practically no means of support. The homestead itself was encumbered with a mortgage, and but for the merciful provision of the law securing dower rights, the widow would have been left without even a shelter for the family. The creditors took everything which they could secure, to the very kindling wood in the shed, and left the widow with her seven children, in the utmost straits. It was at this time that one of Mrs. Moody's brothers ministered most opportunely and generously to the needs of the family. The supply of firewood had been completely exhausted, and the children had been told that they must stay in bed till school-time to keep warm. It was then that Uncle Cyrus Holton came to the rescue with a load of wood, and good Samaritan that he was, sawed and split it for immediate use. I remember, said Mr. Moody in later years, just as vividly as if it were yesterday, how I heard the sounds of chips flying and I knew someone was chopping wood in our woodshed, and that we would soon have a fire. I shall never forget Uncle Cyrus coming with what seemed to me the biggest pile of wood I ever saw in my life. It was such remembrances as these that always made his heart vibrate with peculiar sympathy for those who were in want. A less determined and courageous heart than the resolute widow's would have been overcome by the dark prospect of the future, but that true soul had inherited the sturdy strength and undaunted courage which had distinguished her earliest ancestors as pioneers in the new world, and with a strong faith in God, she faced the conflict with poverty. Some of her neighbors urged her to break up the little home and place the children in families where they might be cared for by strangers. Even those from whom more practical help might have been expected strongly advised this course, and because their advice was not accepted, seemed to feel that they were absolved from any further duty. The birth of twins after her husband died added greatly to the cares and difficulties of her position, 
and during the long summer that followed there were many times when it seemed that the burden was too great for human endurance. It was during these days that Mrs. Moody's brother aided her, and at this time, too, the old minister of the Unitarian Church, the Reverend Mr. Everett, interested himself in the family's behalf. Shortly after the father's death, this good man visited the destitute family, and helped them both by counsel and material assistance. The older children were all enrolled in the Sunday school of the church, and from the hands of this minister the entire family received the ordinance of baptism, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. No sooner had the attendance of the Moody children been secured than they were commissioned to bring in other scholars. In a sense, therefore, Mr. Moody's Sunday school mission work began at an earlier age than is commonly supposed, for as a child he and his brother George frequently acted as aggressive home missionaries in securing recruits for the village Sunday school. With the sole care of so large a family, the religious instruction in the home was not so thoroughly doctrinal as in some households of today, but the mother instructed her children in the true religion of the heart, that seeks first God and his righteousness. And although Dwight is seventeen, as a member of a young men's Bible class in Boston, was bewildered by the request to turn to a simple scriptural reference, it is doubtful if any of his amused companions were more thoroughly established in pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father than he. Certainly none was purer and more innocent in heart than the keen, awkward country boy. It was not till after he left home that his actual personal conversion occurred, but it was to a tender conscience and an open heart that the gospel invitation was given, and a soul already trained to love and honor God readily accepted his offer of salvation. The Christian training of his mother and the faithfulness of her good pastor was a sacred remembrance in all his after experiences, and he ever spoke appreciatively of the debt he owed to the ministry of Mr. Everett. Trust in God was the brief creed of his mother's simple Christian faith, and early in life the children learned to love that God and pray to Him who is the strength of the fatherless and the widow. Many evidences of the thoroughness with which this lesson was taught to Dwight and his brothers are found in their early experiences. One night in the late fall, Dwight's older brother, a boy of twelve, and himself, then only eight years of age, started to a neighboring farm about four miles away, where they had secured employment in the cutting of broom corn. Boylike, they had not started on their journey until the evening had set in, and long before they reached the old ferry across the Connecticut River, it had become very dark. Hand in hand, they crossed the meadow to the landing, and then shouted over the river for the ferryman to bring his skiff. Soon they could hear voices and see a lantern approaching from the opposite bank. Then a voice shouted across the flood that one man would cross the river with the boat, while the other would remain where he was with the lantern to direct their course. In the intense darkness, they soon lost sight of the approaching boat, and for a long time they could hear nothing of the ferryman, who had been carried far down the stream by the swift current. After some suspense, they heard the boat approaching along the bank of the river, and finally the boatman reached them. When they had taken their places and were pushing out from the bank, the boys found that the old man was intoxicated and in no condition to row them safely across the river. Dwight held tightly to his brother, who, seeing that they were being carried far away from the lantern on the opposite bank, urged to be allowed to take the oars and help. But the old man in his condition stubbornly refused, and as the current bore them swiftly down the stream, they became more and more alarmed. Then Dwight, taking his brother's hand, tried to encourage him by assuring him that God would care for them and guard them even in their present peril. Many a child in similar circumstances would have thought only of human expedience, but at that early age he had been taught an implicit trust in God as the true resource in time of danger. Mrs. Moody was tender-hearted and the children early learned the privilege of giving from their scanty store. The hungry were never turned away from her door, and on one occasion when the provision for the evening meal was very meager, it was put to the vote of the little ones whether they would give their little supply to a poor beggar who appealed for aid. 
The children begged that he should be aided, and offered to have their own slices cut thinner. It was also one of the irrevocable laws of her home that no fault-finding or complaining of neighbors or friends would be tolerated. The mother thus implemented in the children a spirit of independence as well as charity. And even those whose neglect was most inexcusable never heard directly or indirectly one word of complaint from that little family in their want and adversity. Dwight Moody was not the only Yankee boy who could look back on that combination of charity for others with inflexible independence for oneself that has made the New England character what it is. His very limitations taught the poor boy of that day the sharpness and contrivance that grew into what we call executive ability. Just as the most Spartan simplicity of diet and training developed in a good constitution the wonderful power of endurance that have marked many New Englanders. While the mother was truly kind and loving, she was withal a strict disciplinarian. Order was enforced by rules, with old-fashioned whippings as a penalty. These events were more or less frequent in the case of Dwight, who was the leader in all kinds of boyish mischief. In later years he described these punishments and his futile attempts to escape them. Mother would send me out for a stick, and I thought I could fool her and get a dead one. But she would snap the stick and then tell me to get another. She was rarely in a hurry, and certainly never when she was whipping me. Once I told her that the whipping did not hurt at all. I never had occasion to tell her so again, for she put it on so it did hurt. To those whippings Mr. Moody always referred with great approval, but with delightful inconsistency never adopted the same measures in the government of his own family. In his home grace was the ruling principle and not law, and the sorest punishment of a child was the sense that the father's loving heart had been grieved by waywardness or folly. Among the principles which this Puritan mother taught her children to observe was the sanctity of a promise. In later years it was characteristic of Mr. Moody that he hated to commit himself absolutely by promises, and doubtless that aversion was in part to the outgrowth of the stern but wholesome teachings of his youth. If the children tried to avoid an obligation, the question they had to meet was not, Can you? but, Did you say you would? If a promise had been made, it must be kept. Once, when Dwight went to his older brother to be released from an agreement to work for a neighbor for his board during the winter, while he was also attending school, the case was carried to their mother. Dwight's cause of complaint was that for nineteen consecutive meals his only food had been cornmeal and milk. When his mother found that he had enough to eat, such as it was, Dwight was sent back to keep his agreement. But with all the strictness of her discipline, the mother was tenderly wise, in a manner not so common at that day as now, when the needs of the children are so carefully studied. Knowing the dangers that awaited her children in the outside world, she determined to guard them as long as she could. To do this, it was necessary to make home attractive, and this she proved herself able to do far better than many who have had more means with which to secure the luxuries of life. She discouraged her children from going to the neighbors to find their recreation, but always welcomed their friends to the hospitality of their own home. They were spirited children, and given to wild romps, but she would sit quietly at her mending, though the very roof seemed threatened by the boisterous games of her own and her neighbor's boys and girls. Advent of a Sabbath's rest, beginning with sundown on Saturday, and ending at the same time Sunday evening, must have been to her a most welcome respite. Church attendance was not a debatable question in the family, but was as inevitable as a law of nature. The boys used to go barefoot, carrying their shoes and stockings in their hands, and putting them on when they came inside of the church. The elder boys, who were out at work during the week, came home on Saturday night to attend church with their brothers and sisters. They carried luncheon and stayed all day, hearing the two sermons and attending the Sunday school, which came in between. And then all would troop home again for supper, the older ones returning late to their work, while the younger children, as the sunset approached the end of the day of rest, would release their long pent-up spirits in wild romps and shouts. In spite of the poverty which parted them during the week, the mother thus preserved the home life on the one day in seven. 
In later years, Mr. Moody looked back with gratitude to the strict requirement of church attendance. Those hours in the village church, tedious as they were, listening as he must to sermons which he could not understand, he came to look upon as a blessing because they fixed upon him the habit of attending God's house. I remember blaming my mother for sending me to church on the Sabbath, he once said. On one occasion, the preacher had to send someone into the gallery to wake me up. I thought it was hard to have to work in the field all week and then be obliged to go to church and hear a sermon I didn't understand. I thought I wouldn't go to church any more when I got away from home, and I had got so in the habit of going that I couldn't stay away. And after one or two Sabbaths, back again to the house of God I went. There I first found Christ, and I have often said since, Mother, I thank you for making me go to the house of God when I didn't want to go. Sunday evenings after supper, the mother would gather the children about her, before the old-fashioned fireplace in winter, or under one of the great sugar maple trees in the front yard if it were summer, and read to them out of the books which they brought home from the Sunday school library. Three books constituted the home library, a large family Bible, in which were written the family records, a catechism, and a book of devotions, comprising contemplations and written prayers. From the latter, a portion was read each morning, and also a prayer before the family entered upon the work of the day. Mr. Moody could never speak of those early days of want and adversity without the most tender references to that brave mother whose self-sacrifice and devotion had sacredly guarded the home entrusted to her care. When, at the age of ninety, her life voyage ended, she entered the haven of rest. Her children, her children's children, and an entire community rose up to call her blessed. And well she deserved the praise they gave her, for she had wisely and discreetly discharged the duties God had placed upon her, and entering the presence of her master could render a faithful account of the stewardship of motherhood. To rule a household of seven sturdy boys and two girls, the oldest twelve years old, required no ordinary tact and sound judgment. But so discreet was this loyal mother that to the very end she made home the most loved place on earth to her family, and so trained her children as to make them a blessing to society. For nearly fifty years I have been coming back to Northfield, said Mr. Moody, long after that little circle had been broken up, and I have always been glad to get back. When I get within fifty miles of home I grow restless and walk up and down the car. It seems as if the train will never get to Northfield. When I come back after dark I always look to see the lights in Mother's window.